welcome back to our sermon series through the book of Mark. Even though uh, we took a brief hiatus due to sheltering in place, we are back. And so today we are going to be in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. And we've titled this sermon series as a whole, Who is Jesus? Because that's exactly the question that Mark keeps answering over and over and over again. Uh, As you know, Mark's gospel started out with a clear statement uh, on this this question of who is Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And really what Mark's been doing since since that point is kind of coloring in the the rest of the picture for us. Uh, We've seen Jesus as the second Adam, the better prophet, the king of Psalm 2. We've seen him as the bridegroom, the healer who's able to heal bodies, but also to forgive sins. Uh, We've seen him as the great physician who eats with tax collectors and sinners. And we've seen him even as the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, Today, as we jump into the text again, we're going to see yet another amazing portrait of who Jesus is. He's truly amazing. You can't just simply overlook him as some backwoods rabbi who said some crazy things and then died. Who he was and what he did and how he did it is truly remarkable. So let's see this again in today's text. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, because of the crowd, lest they crushed him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. In our text today, we have two distinct scenes. Scene number one, we have Jesus on the beach in verses 7 through 12. And then scene number two is Jesus on the mountain in verses 13 through 19. So scene number one, Jesus on the beach. But before we get into verse 7, I want us to remember where we left off last time. Uh, Jesus had 
healed a man in a synagogue. And then in verse 6, we learned that, that these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, team up to destroy Jesus. Remember, these two groups are arch enemies, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And that yet, they partner together to destroy Jesus. Crazy stuff, huh? Well, what is Jesus' response to that? Verse 7, Jesus withdraws, or at least he tries to. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone? It should. If you remember, earlier in the book of Mark, we saw something very similar happen in Mark chapter 1, right? Jesus teaches, heals a man. And then, Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. In many ways, this section in Mark 3 that we're in today mirrors Mark 1. But... I don't want us to forget that Mark, as an author, moves fast. He doesn't add any fluff. Each scene that he includes is there for a purpose. So, while these two stories do have similarities for Mark 1 and Mark 3, I want to suggest that the importance is in their differences. So, what's different about Mark 3 from Mark 1? Well, notice that before, Jesus was actually able to get alone, but not here. Jesus was able to move on and escape the crowds before, not this time. So what's going on here? Jesus heads to the beach. Look with me at verse 7 and 8. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So Jesus tries to get away, but a great crowd follows him. And look at what the text tells us next. From Galilee, this is where they're from, from Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem to the west. Idumea in the south. Jordan in the east, Tyre and Sidon in the north. So north, south, east, and west, people are flocking to see Jesus. And this is not like us saying, well, people from Santa Cruz and Live Oak and Capitola and SoCal and Aptos, they, they all showed up there. It's not like that at all. These people came from all over the place and long distances. This wasn't a small gathering of people who just happened to be in the area. It was a massive crowd. It was also a diverse crowd. We see Jewish re regions represented from Judea, half-Jewish regions from Samaria, and non-Jewish regions as well. The point is this. The crowd is growing. 
Even as you have the Pharisees and the Herodians hating Jesus and plotting his destruction, the crowds are growing. But why? Look at verses 9 and 10. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So they're not there necessarily for his words or even for truth. They're there for healing. So much so that Jesus has his guys prepare a getaway car. They're about to crush him. You can almost hear Jesus saying to to the disciples, guys, keep the car running. Uh, This is about to get out of hand. Now, I, I, I want us to remember what Jesus' first and foremost, what his priority was. We saw this multiple times in chapter 1. He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Repentance and belief. Physical healing took a back seat to that. In chapter 1 and here. But for this crowd, they weren't interested in Jesus' words. Words of life. They were interested in temporary, physical healing. And this happened to Jesus quite often. I think of after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus feeds all of these people. And then in John 6, verse 26 through 29, it says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So both there in John chapter 6 and here in Matthew, or Mark 3, the crowds were more interested in their bodies than in their souls. And I want to just say this morning that this is eternally dangerous. Later in the book of Mark, we're going to see Jesus addressing this explicitly. Look at what he says. Mark chapter 8, verses 35 through 36, Jesus says this. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So, what about you this morning? Are are you more concerned with your body than your soul? What do you treasure more? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you treasure more, your body or your soul? What does your, your schedule say about this? Schedules don't lie, do they? How important is your soul compared to everything else on your schedule, even during a time of sheltering in place? So these people are crowding Jesus. They're hoping for healing. And then look at verse 11. This is amazing. 
And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. So, who is Jesus? First, these demonic spirits fall down before him. This is submission and defeat. Jesus isn't just a good teacher, is he? Demons don't fall down in submission to good teachers. He's authoritative in the spiritual realm. Demons bow down to him. Then, what do they say with their mouths? What do they cry out? They say, you are the son of God. We notice this back in chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. But here it happens again. Mark has so clearly told us who Jesus is from verse 1 we saw. But the actual people in the story aren't so sure, are they? There's even confusion from his disciples until later in the narrative. But the demons know who Jesus is. Both in chapter 1 and here, their theology is spot on. And this should give us pause. Look, we, we are a theology church. We care deeply about doctrine because doctrine matters. If, if we don't have the right doctrine, we can be as sincere as the day is long and yet be sincerely wrong. We must have true belief about Jesus. That's essential. It's life or death. But... That belief must work its way from our heads all the way down into our hearts. You can be right on every point of theology and yet hate God. The demons are proof of this in our text today. They're right on their doctrine of Christ and they're in hell. Scary, but the same is true for us this morning. We can be right on every point of doctrine and still go to hell. These demons have better theology than the disciples in the story. And they hate God. My friend Matt said this well. He said, there, there won't be any heretics in heaven. We're going to see clearly. There won't be anyone denying the Son of God. But, at the same time, hell will have some mighty fine theologians in it. Think about that. The truth of who Jesus is must make its way from our heads to our hearts. Pray that God will do this in you, even this morning. This is something that only the Spirit can do. It's a work of the Spirit. So load yourself by all means with the Word of God. Study theology. Be at church. Gather with God's people. Hear the Word preached. Do all of that. But know that it must be a work of the Spirit to move from your head to your heart. The demons correctly identify Jesus. That's fascinating. Look at what happens next. Verse 12. And he strictly ordered them 
not to make him known. Why in the world would Jesus do this? They correctly identify him and he just immediately shuts it down. Why would he do this? Well, a couple of reasons come to mind. Number one, not all advertisement is good advertisement. The message matters. And the messenger matters. Think about this. If you were opening a new business in town, who would you want promoting you? I think about Paul in Acts chapter 16. There's a slave girl who's demon-possessed. And she's following Paul around and she's yelling. She's saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Good publicity, right? She couldn't be more right about who these men are and what they're doing. What does Paul do? The text says that Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, he said this, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. <laughs> Not all publicity is good publicity. If a town drunk wanted to start advertising for our church or maybe even Planned Parenthood, that wouldn't be a good idea, right? There are some people you just don't want to be associated with. That's one reason Jesus tells them to shut up. Number two, we've already seen that Jesus' identity, uh, as it gets out, it hinders his ministry. As soon as people knew who he was in Capernaum, people flocked to get healed. He had to leave. And he couldn't go into town smoothly anymore. So he, he didn't want the word to get out yet. Third, they didn't yet understand what it meant for Jesus to be correctly called the Son of God. Even Jesus' disciples were confused and thought that he'd be doing a, a military takeover of Rome. That's not what he came to do. He came to die in their place. They couldn't understand this yet. And so he shuts the mouths of the demons. Fourth, it, it wasn't yet time for him to be crucified. As soon as word began to spread, it would quickly lead to Jesus' arrest and then crucifixion. The demons knew this. Jesus knew this. And so he stops them cold in their tracks. As a quick side note, I find this story to be strangely encouraging. Do you see that the immense amount of chaos and pressure that Jesus is experiencing here? Sometimes we tend to think of Jesus as this just hippie guru who floated around on a cloud and never experienced pressures like we do. But not so. Jesus was fully God. But he was also fully man. He experienced pressure just like each of us do. If you work in a hard job where the stakes are high, take comfort. Jesus has experienced pressure just like you. He understands you. He's been there. It seems like the, the more Jesus ministers, the busier he gets, right? It's no different for us. The more you care about people, 
the busier you're going to get. But Jesus understands you. He's been there. You can trust him. Isn't that great? Now, amidst this pressure, how does Jesus deal with it? Scene number two, Jesus on the mountain. Look with me at verses 13 through 15. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. First of all, I want us to notice that Jesus, this time successfully, got away from the large crowds. Jesus is literally being crushed by the lame, the sick, and the demon-possessed. And yet he gets away. He could have stayed there and continued to heal people and cast out demons. But he doesn't. He gets away. Jesus is fully God. But he's also fully man. All of the introverts out there are probably saying, Yeah, he got away from the crowd, so he got away from the people. Woohoo! But I, I want to suggest to us this morning that this is needed for all of us as humans, not just for introverts. Let's face it. Like Jesus, in his humanity, we all live pressured lives, busy lives. Lives with constant demand upon us. We wake up to our iPhones, check our email or social media. When we're not quarantined, we listen to the news even as we shower and dress for work. We drive through busy traffic with people honking as soon as the lights turn green. We work. We listen to the late news on the way home. We never turn it off. Never get away. I want you to hear this loud and clear. It is essential that we get away and turn all of it off from time to time. You, you might be thinking, Drew, I don't have time to get away. What are you talking about? Well, I'm not suggesting a, a week or even a day here. Even though a day of Sabbath is, is vital to, to our, our spiritual growth. I'm suggesting finding a couple of moments just to sit in your car with everything turned off. A, a five to ten minute hike. A couple of quiet moments up early before the family wakes up. What we're after here is time alone with God. If you're always on... You're never going to be good for anyone. Getting time alone with God is so important for your growth as a follower of Christ. I don't know what this is going to look like for each of you, but I can't recommend it enough. Do whatever you need to do to make this happen. The second thing I want us to see here about Jesus on the mountain is this. In response to the pressure... What did Jesus do? He appointed the twelve. Notice this. Don't miss this. If there was ever a person in the history of the universe that was capable of going at it alone, it was Jesus. 
He had the perfect relationship with God the Father. He was all wise. He was God in the flesh. Yet, he called people all around him. And we think that, that we can go at this Christian life alone? That's silly. We can't. We need others. We need each other. It's not good for man to be alone. And look at this amazing statement in the middle of verse 14. It says, And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. As Matt Bradbury constantly reminds me, one little preposition changes everything. Right, Matt? Matt even bought me this book with this title, With. Do you see that? It says, so that they might be with him. Again, they didn't just need to know about him. They needed to be with him. And I do too. And you do too. If you want to be like Jesus, you've got to spend time with him. It'll change your life. Look at what it did to the disciples. They spend three years with Jesus, despite the fact that none of them had studied theology. People are astonished at their wisdom and at their power. Look at this. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Have you spent time with Jesus? Would others recognize it? Have you spent time with Jesus? And would others recognize it? We don't have Jesus' physical presence with us today. But we do have his words right here in the Bible. We have His Spirit speaking through the Bible and in our hearts. We have access to Him in prayer every moment of every day. Spend time with Jesus. It's essential to discipleship and growing as a Christian. As elders, we got together actually about a month ago. And we all agreed that if we could succeed at one thing this year, it would be this. Discipleship. Leading each of you and leading ourselves and what it means and looks like to be with Jesus. And I want us to notice the order here. They spend time with Jesus. And then he sends them out. Spend time with Jesus and then he sends them out. You know that it's our desire to be a sent out church. We want to obey the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations. We want to do that. We're desperate to do that. We want our ones to hear the gospel and to believe the gospel. But if we haven't spent time with Jesus, we'll never be sent out. Be with Jesus, and then be sent out. 
The third thing I want us to notice is this. I want us to notice a number here. There were definitely more people following Jesus. He could have chosen and appointed three or nine or even a hundred. But he didn't, did he? He appointed twelve. Why did he do this? Remember where we started this sermon. We asked the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the new Israel. He intentionally chooses 12 people to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. If you're not familiar with the Bible, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 in the Old Testament, God calls this guy named Abraham, and he makes a covenant or a promise to him. God says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So understand this. That promise that God made to Abraham affects us this morning. Why? Well, because I'm guessing that most, if not all of us, are not Israelite by bloodline. But this promise was that all nations would be blessed, right? That's us, through the person of Jesus. We're going to come back to that. But you can almost hear the prayer of Psalm 67 here. Psalm 67, starting in verse 1. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let the ends of the earth fear him. You see that? The promise to Abraham to bless him was a promise of God to bless the nations. Abraham had sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac had sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, who gets renamed Israel by God, has how many sons? Twelve. Those twelve sons become the tribes of Israel and God's chosen people. The twelve tribes would be God's target for blessing and his instruments of blessing to the world. Every Jewish person would hear the number 12 and know immediately what that represented. Jesus calls 12 people because he's saying that he's the new Israel. So understand this. Israel, as we've just heard, was to be a mirror or a reflector of God's blessing. He blessed them so that they could bless other people. He would bless them so that they could bless the nations. But how did that work out? They 
failed miserably over and over and over again. They rebelled just like Adam did in the garden. They rejected God and sinned relentlessly. And here's the good news. Jesus is the new and better and true Israel. Look at this. If you know your Old Testament well, and you've been paying attention in the book of Mark, what have we already seen? Israel was set free from slavery in Egypt. What did they do? They went through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus comes on the scene in Mark chapter 1. Goes through the waters of baptism. Then Israel in the book of Exodus. They go into the desert for 40 years. What does Jesus do after going through the water in his baptism? Goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Unlike Israel, though, he never failed under temptation. Israel had 12 tribes. Jesus picked 12 disciples. Where did Moses go in Exodus 19 and 20 to get the law? Mountain, right? Where is Jesus now as he appoints the 12? Mountain. Jesus is making a statement. He's the true Israel. And everywhere that Israel failed, he'll succeed. Jesus picked these 12 guys to bless. And then for them to be a blessing to the nations through his message of good news. Jesus started over with these 12. And they would become the start of an all new people. A people known as the church. We exist as a church today because of these 12 apostles fulfilling their calling in the power of the Spirit. Now, to finish, do you realize just how absurd all this is? If you're an NBA fan, at least when it's going, I love the new way they've started doing the All-Star Game. Two team captains get to go back and forth, just like elementary school days out on the playground. They pick the best players for their team back and forth until they have a squad that they're ready to compete with. Jesus is up on a mountain and he chose 12 men. Surely he chose 12 of the best of the best, right? Not exactly. The list of names in our text is quite amazing. <laughs> I love this. I found this fictitious memo that was sent from a consulting firm to Jesus. And it reads like this. Memo to Jesus of Nazareth from the Jerusalem Management Consulting Firm. Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you've picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken a series of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but we've also conducted an in-depth interview with each of them by our staff psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included, and you will want to study each of them carefully. It is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background education and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept 
and we would highly recommend that you continue your search for persons with more experience, higher qualifications, and a greater managerial ability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and has given up to fits of temper. Andrew simply has no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty and are quite boisterous. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale among the ranks. It is also our duty to inform you that the Better Business Bureau of Greater Jerusalem has received reports on Matthew regarding questionable business practices. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, both have radical leanings and both demonstrate attitude problems which could present difficulty in their dealings with the public. However, one of your candidates shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is likely highly motivated, ambitious, responsible, and is not afraid to take the initiative. We recommend Judas Iscariot as the most qualified of all your prospective candidates. Sincerely, the Jerusalem Management Consulting Firm. <laughs> Great, right? Jesus basically chose the, the bad news bears and a traitor. And he changed the world with them. Isn't that a huge relief? If he can use them, he can use you. And he can use me. He isn't deterred by our failures or our ignorance. He's also not impressed with our resumes. In our weakness, he displays strength. Even in the shocking statement of verse 19, Jesus is completely in control. Look at this, verse 19. So he chooses all of the other 11 in verse 19, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Have you ever watched a grandmaster play chess? It's amazing. Sometimes you, you see them sacrifice a piece because it sets up the winning game. Even in Jesus choosing Judas, who would betray him? He's sovereign. He's in control. Check this out. Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. God! can even use wicked people for gospel ends. His plan will succeed, even when evil people and demonic entities try to thwart it. God's plan cannot be derailed. So, what's he calling you to do this morning? Maybe he's calling you to follow him for the first time. Again, maybe you're, you're sitting out there and you're thinking, me? But you don't know what I've done and where I've come from. Yes, he calls people like you.
people like me. He'll change you from the inside out. He'll use you to be a blessing to others. He's the true Israel. Turn from sin and trust in Jesus as your only hope of salvation. He has a plan for your life. Maybe he's calling you this morning to greater discipleship. Have you given more time in your calendar to your body than to your soul? What would it look like for you to, to make your spiritual life a priority starting today? Are you regularly with Jesus? He's calling you not just to know about him, but to be with him. Will you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. That over and over and over again, you allow us to know who you are. You are the Son of God who came to this world to redeem ruined sinners like me. Lord, thank you for that truth. You came here, you lived a perfect life that none of us are capable of. You died a gruesome death on the cross to pay the payment that none of us could pay. You rose from the grave three days later defeating once and for all sin, Satan, and death. Thank you for that truth. God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. And in light of that, we ask you to call us, Lord. Whether you're calling us to yourself for the first time or calling us into deeper discipleship, we pray that you would just make that clear, that we would listen to you, that we would immerse ourselves in your word, you would speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.